So if you haven't been here for a while, or this, or you're relatively new here, we've been studying from the, Paul's letter to the Roman church. So that's what we've been about for the past several weeks. And I'll ask you to imagine something. Imagine the perfect father. Alex, Emily, and Rachel, imagine the perfect father. Some of you are going to have to have wild imaginations for this. He is loving and just. He provides for all the children's needs, but doesn't spoil them. He teaches what is good and true. He protects them from harm. He is clear about what he expects and, and rewards and the punishments. He is patient. He provides a way of forgiveness and redemption for their disobedience. And he does a whole lot of other things that are right. He is a perfectly faithful and righteous dad. But the kids are not. The father at last has, has to bring consequences upon them, though he still holds out the promise of restoration if they repent and trust him. The father's righteousness is upheld and displayed even in their unrighteousness. Does that make their unfaithfulness a good thing because it magnifies the father's righteousness? That today is what we're looking at in part as illustrates some of the arguments that Paul was dealing with in Romans 3 regarding righteousness and his chosen people, Israel, the Jews. In chapter 2, where we were last week and the week before, Paul argued that the Jews had trusted in having and knowing the law and in having the covenant sign of circumcision as guarantees that they would not be judged by God. Paul concluded this by saying that a person who is a Jew, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is an operation of the heart by the spirit, not by just the letter, the outward law only. No one really keeps God's law, he said, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. And what he was pointing to, though he didn't elaborate on this in detail, is the fact that the old covenant was inadequate and temporary, the old way of symbols and signs pointing to the fulfillment of in Christ. The only hope for Jew or Gentile was in salvation by Christ through the work of the Spirit. In fact, a Gentile who was circumcised in heart so that he keeps the law could be the equivalent of a true Jew. If one can be like a true Jew and truly circumcised in heart without being an ethnic Jew and physically cir circumcised, what is the advantage of being an ethnic Jew and what is the value of circumcision? For the answer to that, let's turn to chapter 3. We'll look at verses 1 through 8, chapter 3. then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. 
What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Father, again, we seek you for your Spirit's help in understanding and making clear your word. Father, steer, steer me clear from error and steer our hearts directly to the truth of your word, drawing our hearts to Christ, we ask in his name. Amen. So in verse 1, I'm kind of surprised by the answer, that the question that Paul proposes is what advantage has the Jew? And based upon the, where he'd been going through chapter 2 especially, you might think he would say none whatsoever. There is no advantage. In fact, it almost seems to be a disadvantage. But instead, he answers much in every way in verse 2. Verse 2, much in every way is a great advantage. Don't think for a minute that there was no advantage to being a Jew. And he says, first of all, they were entrusted with the very oracles of God. God's revelation, his very words. As recorded in what we call the Old Testament. God gave them his revelation as a trust that they were to believe and to display in their lives. And in that sense, we carry on that trust, don't we? As the church, we're the pillar in support of God's truth. We're to put his truth on display. As Paul said in one of his other letters, we're to guard the good deposit that he has made with us, entrusted to us, to faithfully teach and live out the word. So guarding the word of God doesn't mean hiding it away. It means teaching it and living it out. Now, of central importance to the Old Testament words that God gave to the Israelites was the promise of the new covenant that was going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that God would save the Jews in the future. If they missed this, they missed the main point of the, of the words of God which, with which they were entrusted. If you are not led to faith in Christ as you read the Bible, you're missing the main point of what the Bible is for. The Bible is a book about Jesus. And so don't, don't reject the primary purpose of, of God's word. Paul, Paul later gets to a longer list of, of Jewish advantages, as we'll see in Romans chapter 9. We'll take a quick look at this in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 to 5. He, he lists other advantages. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, to them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, or the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. So they, they really have great advantages entrusted to them. But he, he's focusing in at this point on the most important advantage, 
having the words of God because he is going to focus on God's faithfulness to his word in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness. Even though having the oracles of God was an advantage, Israel ends up under God's judgment for not obeying God's law. That leads to the next question. In verse 3, Paul has his objector asked, so he's, he's using a, an imaginary objector. But they're his questions, but he's, he's heard these a lot before. So what if some were unfaithful? What if some of the Jews were unfaithful? Well, some were unfaithful. Actually, in chapter 11, we read that that some was called a, a remnant. Those who were faithful were just a remnant. So actually, some means most. Most were unfaithful. In what way were the Jews unfaithful? From chapter 2, we know that they didn't truly keep God's law. And was as was implied in chapter 2, Paul more fully explains later, they didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't believe in the very fulfillment of the old covenant that the oracles of God promised. So, will their faithlessness nullify or invalidate God's faithfulness? Some people today criticize the Bible or the teaching of God's Word as not being very effective in helping people change, turn aside from their bad ways. Or they criticize the Bible or the teaching of the church because people who grew up in the church or attended for years turned their backs on the Lord and lived foolish and destructive lives. Will their faith, faithlessness nullify God's faithfulness? Well, Paul answers that in verse 4. He says, By no means, may it never be, absolutely not, no way. God will always be true, faithful to his word. Even if everyone else in the universe is a big fat liar. We think truth is established by how many people believe in something or, or don't believe in something or what our friends think or what's trending on Twitter. When you despair over all the lying and the unfaithfulness in the world, know that God is always true. He's always true. He's always faithful. Like Horton the Elephant, I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. An elephant is faithful 100%. And that works. That works. God is 100% faithful. You can trust him. Take his word always. Don't ever doubt it. And God will fulfill his promise to save the, to save the Jews. Not one of his promises to Israel will fail. Not one. In fact, in chapter 11, we'll see that God is going to bring in a full harvest of Jews at the close of, of this present age. He has a massive plan for, for redeeming his people. I love the phrase in um, Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie. God is not a man that he should lie. So we're so used to people lying that God is not a man he should lie. 
God never lies. This is our hope for the church. Not just Harvest Church. Yes, Harvest Church, but the church throughout history. Because the church has gone through some really dark times where they virtually lost the gospel. And like Israel, where they've been God's covenant people, they often not look much like God's covenant people. Or, or the churches look prosperous externally, but lost her first love and has not been faithful to take the gospel to the nations. But Christ promised that on the gospel, he will build his church. And the gates of death and hell can't prevail against it. And as he's building his church, he's building our lives on the foundation of the gospel. And nothing can destroy, ultimately, our lives if they're founded and grounded on God's word in the gospel. Thank God that he is faithful even when we are unfaithful. Are you grateful for that? Because we have faithfulness deficit disorder, FDD. Our faithfulness to God is based on his faithfulness to us through Jesus. So our faithfulness to God is not that we never fail God. It means that we keep putting our trust in him again and again and again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because he's faithful and just. And as we continue to agree with God about our sin and our need for his grace, we will grow in faithfulness to him. And by trusting in God, we'll grow in faithfulness to him. But his faithfulness is the ground and the foundation of our faithfulness. On the other hand, God will also be true to his word, his promise. And in, in context, Paul is addressing the Jews but it applies to professing Christians as well. He, he's going to be faithful to his promise to those who remain faithless, who don't believe in his way of salvation through Messiah Jesus, really, that he will judge. He will be faithful to judge justly. That's why Paul quotes David from Psalm 51.4. The whole verse reads like this, and I, I think I may have it up on the screen. This is David seeking God's forgiveness after his sin with Bathsheba. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So David was trusting in God's saving righteousness for forgiveness of his sin and for redemption, but he confessed that God's judging righteousness was just as well. And as I was thinking about this, I realized just in a fresh way, and this is, this is just the, the truth. I deserve, if I get what I deserve, I deserve to be punished in hell forever. Your pastor deserves to be in hell. God would be just to do that. The only hope that I have is, is Christ. Christ took my hill on the cross. 
and offered it freely to me, forgiveness and, and righteousness. So God is faithful and righteous in his promise to save. But no Jew or anyone else should presume that just because he's in the right religious camp that he's guaranteed salvation. The Jew shouldn't think God is faithful to his covenant promise. I'm in the covenant. I'm secure, so my sins are no big deal. Or... The Christian shouldn't think God is faithful to save me by his grace. I've checked in with Jesus, so I'm good to live life as I want, and God will accept me. If your life is telling a lie about what it is to be faithful to God, what it is to be in a covenant relationship with God, God will not affirm your lie about his, his righteousness. If your heart doesn't trust in the way of God's saving righteousness in Christ and your life doesn't reflect faithfulness to him, you will experience God's righteous judgment. Paul wrote in another one of his letters, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. So this is God's, what he's testifying to is true. God knows the, those who are his. He's not wondering, I wonder, if, is that one mine? I'm not sure. I've got to check him out a little closer. No, he knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So God knows you if you're his, and he gives you an assignment, by his grace, but an assignment to be departing from iniquity. Paul continues offering up these, these arguments in verse 5. But if our righteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Paul pictures the Jewish objector saying, if we are so unrighteous that all we can do is show how righteous God is in judgment, if we're so unrighteous that that's all that we're doing is displaying God's righteousness in judgment, Shall we say God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? How can God be just in executing judgment if his righteousness is extolled by our unrighteousness? If we make his righteousness look good in him being a judge of our unrighteousness, maybe we don't deserve to be judged anyway because we're, we're magnifying his righteousness. In other words, the criticism against Paul's teaching is that he's been saying throughout chapters 2 and 3 that the Jews can do nothing but fail to, to be faithful to God's covenant. He said that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, they are only unrighteous and cannot avoid God's judgment. So Paul has taught that God's truth is magnified even if every person is a liar. He teaches that God's righteousness is shown in the judging of sinners. So, so but, but... Doesn't Paul's teaching that God's righteousness in judging them is magnified by their unrighteousness actually backfire and make God unrighteous to inflict wrath upon them? Do you see that argument? Just say yes. Thank you. Paul can't even let that hang for a second without saying, hey, I, I'm just speaking on human terms. I'm speaking according to human thinking. And then in verse 6, he rejects that reasoning by saying, by no means, once again, may it never be unthinkable 
Paul says that the Jewish objection that his gospel teaching makes God out to be unrighteous to judge them would mean that God wouldn't be able to judge the rest of the world. In other words, he can't judge the Gentiles either. In our culture and times, we say, no problem. We think God is too nice a guy to judge people anyway. So um, he just accepts everybody. But to the Jews of Jesus' time, they assumed God would judge those corrupt Gentiles. And they knew the truth. It's made very clear in Scripture that God is a righteous judge. He is a righteous judge. The judge of all the earth will do right. As one person said, a a loving God who has no wrath is no God. He is an idol of our own making as much as if we carved him out of stone. We're so used to unrighteous judges or imperfect judges who have other agendas than upholding the law. But to judge the world in perfect justice, we need a perfectly righteous judge. Otherwise, we have got a big, massive right on our hands. There will be no slick lawyers who can get sinners off on a technicality. There will be no not guilty by reason of insanity. In verse 7, Paul says virtually again what he said in verse 5. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Through what lie? If through my lie, well, the the falsehood of being unfaithful to God, the lie of claiming to be in a covenant relationship with God while not obeying him from the heart, like the lie of saying you love your spouse while being unfaithful to them. God's truth then refers to his faithfulness to, to righteously judge sin. If you suppress God's truth and unrighteousness, God will vindicate his truth in righteous judgment, and it will abound to his glory. So this is true, that God's truth abounds to his glory as it exposes and judges our lies. But the imaginary objector that Paul's framing these questions from um, puts a false spin on the implication by saying, if God's truth is glorified through my lying, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? If God is glorified more by my by judging my unfaithfulness to his covenant, since you are saying that that is all I can do in myself, how can he judge sin? It's like Paul will say in chapter 9 when he addresses similar arguments against his gospel, since you say God has mercy on whomever he wills, and it's up to him to have mercy, Why does he still find fault? In verse 8, Paul unpacks the answer. And he actually continues part of the argument here. And why not do evil that good may come? That's what some were saying. Some of the Jews were slandering Paul and claiming this is what he was saying. In making this false claim about Paul's gospel, preaching and teaching, the objectors are trying to discredit Paul to the Jews saying that he is advocating that you're free to live as you want, free to do as you please because God can bring good from it. They're claiming that he actually encourages doing evil because God will bring good out of it and glorify himself. 
Paul at this point doesn't dignify such an obvious and perverted distortion of his gospel teaching with an answer. He simply says their condemnation is just. They clearly deserve the very judgment they assume that they don't deserve because they willfully distort the implications of the gospel. They show they are rejecting the way of salvation by grace through Christ. You know, I've heard people reject the gospel on this basis. People have said something along the lines of, I can't believe that you're, you're saved by grace alone through faith alone in the gospel because of Christ alone, because they think it makes it too easy. They say in, in righteous indignation, I can't, I can't just accept that someone else pays for my sins and that gets me off. I have to surely do something. I can't accept that God will just let me into heaven because someone else paid for my sins. They object that by saying, you're saying that you can live like hell and still go to heaven. Paul is making really clear in this long couple, two or three chapters on sin. If we, if we miss the point he's making, the point is no one by their own righteousness can deserve going to heaven. No one. We, we don't have it. We can't pay off our own sins. We can't conjure up our own righteousness. We're lost. Don't miss that point. So either you receive his righteousness and eternal life as a gift or don't go to heaven when you die. It's gift or give what you deserve. Others show by their lives they think salvation by God's faithfulness to his promise to save us by grace through faith in Christ means they can pursue all their pleasures and things of this world. They misinterpret God's kindness to mean that he is lenient and indulgent rather than a righteous judge who will be faithful to his word both to save and to judge. He's righteous to save. He's righteous to judge. True saving faith in Christ, Christ, the faith that really receives salvation from Christ, values the horrible cost that Christ paid for our sins. True faith doesn't presume to keep indulging in the sins for which Christ died. So as, as we take the communion elements today, we're saying, I hate the sin for which my Savior had to die. And I love his gift of salvation and life through his death on the cross and through his resurrection. How we, how we respond to God's grace reveals what's going on in our hearts. If you take advantage of it and say, hey, I, I, I've got my ticket, I'm good to go, I can live as I want, that's a good sign or a bad sign of where your heart is. Thank God for the gospel because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, they're first in line, and also to the Greek or whatever stripe of Gentile you happen to be. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God, the righteousness that God gives to us, 
is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written in God's oracles. The righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, what glad, joyful, fantastic, unspeakably great news the gospel is. That you didn't lower your standards to save us, though you humbled yourself, in the, your son humbled himself, taking on humanity, taking on human nature, becoming like us in weakness, subject to temptation, subject to suffering and weakness, and obviously, ultimately, subject to death. He humbled himself so that he could enter, to, enter into our human state and perfectly obey you and defeat and conquer sin on the cross so that your judging righteousness was spent on Christ for all who put their trust in him. And your saving righteousness was upheld and accomplished in Christ in his death and resurrection and continues to be worked in us through the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for the gospel. We praise you that you are a perfectly righteous and just God and that you give us hard words so that you can produce in us soft hearts. And that doesn't happen automatically. I pray, Father, that by your grace, you would soften our hearts toward your word. And you would cause our hearts to, to be really, really trusting and treasuring in your righteousness, both in your perfect righteousness and who you are, and the righteousness that you grant to us that comes from outside of us through Jesus, in whose name we pray. Thank you.